0: God's Word has application to our everyday lives. Well, and let me uh, also add my Happy Father's Day to the day's festivities here. And so glad that you're able to join us. I know we have folks traveling and folks visiting. And if you are among the visitors, thank you for being here today. And I hope that your visit with us will be Uh, not only enjoyable but profitable to you spiritually we hope that you will come and worship with us again and uh, you would be we would be delighted to have you come we're in the gospel of Mark we've been working our way through that gospel since actually before the beginning of the year we're all the way up to chapter 6 we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 6 this morning so if you have your Bible with you open it please to Matthew or Mark the gospel of Mark second book in the New Testament, uh, chapter 6 verses (coughs) 1 through 6. And I'd like to read that for us and set it in our minds so that we are thinking about it and um, are familiar with it. Then he went out from there and came to his own country and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished saying where did this man get these things and what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands is this not the carpenter the son of Mary the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? so they were offended at him but Jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except in his own country among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marvelled because of their unbelief. Then he went out or er, then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. This is the word of the Lord and uh, it is inspired and infallible and we need to take its lessons into our hearts and minds in light of those truths let's pray together heavenly father we thank you so much for your word and we pray father that your spirit will take your word and penetrate our hearts and that we will see from your word the truth that you have there for us and how that applies to our individual lives. Father, we thank You for loving us. We thank You for giving us Your inspired Word. And Lord, may we never treat it lightly. May we never treat it with contempt. But may it sink deeply into our souls and transform us from the inside out. Because this is Your Word to us. It is Your love letter to us. Help us to receive it as such. Father, you know the needs of each person here today. and We ask, Father, that you would minister to each life and meet the needs that are represented here that we might be able to give our lives to you as an offering of praise. Thank you for all that you have done for us in the past and the way in which you work in our lives now. And thank you for the future hope that we have of eternal life. And Lord, may all the days that we live in this world be a testimony to your greatness, to your power, to your mercy, to your forgiveness, to your compassion. Speak to our hearts now, we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So if you had opportunity to do some reading this week, you probably read in Mark chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 13, and Luke chapter 4, Mark 6 and Matthew 13 are clearly recounting the very same event. Now some Bible scholars think that Luke chapter 4 is also that same event recorded in Matthew and Mark. But others, uh, myself included, see those as two different events. The recording of Luke's gospel records Jesus' experience in Nazareth when he first came back from Jerusalem when he first came back from the area of Judea just before he set up his ministry there in Capernaum uh, in the northern part of Galilee where he spent quite a bit of time a little more than a year uh, there ministering and preaching and teaching among the people in Galilee. We call that his great Galilean ministry. This passage that we're looking at today in Mark, and also we'll, we'll check out a few things in Matthew as well. This records a second time that Jesus went to his hometown village of Nazareth. Now you know that he was born in Bethlehem. But after being born in Bethlehem, his father, jo- or foster father, Joseph, and Mary went to Egypt because Herod the Great was looking to put Jesus to death. He had heard that there was a king born in Judea in the city of Bethlehem and King Herod in his old age and insanity couldn't brook any kind of competition and so he wanted to get rid of this young upstart baby king. And so he had the baby boys in and around Jerusalem slaughtered, but God knowing all things beforehand, had given a warning to Joseph. And Joseph took Mary and Jesus down into Egypt. Probably stayed there for about a year. And when they came back, Archelaus was in his father Herod's place. Archelaus wasn't really much better. (laughs) And so rather than stay in Bethlehem or even stay in Jerusalem, Joseph and Mary went back to their hometown of Nazareth. And so that's where Jesus grew up. All of his human memory would have been focused on Nazareth as kind of the hometown. Uh, he, He grew up there. He played with his brothers and sisters there. He played with the neighborhood kids there. He had a normal, ordinary human childhood though without sin. Now that's hard for you and I to understand, isn't it? He was perfect, human in all points, and he was tempted in all points, just as we are, and yet without sin. And so, Jesus, I'm sure, as probably you and I have, had a little affection for the folks back home in Nazareth. We have a little affection for the folks back home in our hometown. Maybe you've never left your hometown. Maybe or maybe you've come back to it after years of being away. There's just something about that hometown that's comfortable to us, that we like and we appreciate. And I think that was probably true for Jesus as well. He's coming now to this town, Nazareth, for the second time since his public ministry has begun. The first time was not a happy experience. If you read Luke's Gospel, you found that as he was given the scroll of Isaiah and he opened it to the appropriate place and he read there and then he sat down to teach, which was, by the way, that was how the the service was conducted, primarily in the synagogue. You would stand for the reading of Scripture and then the, uh, the rabbi or whoever was speaking that day, they would sit down to teach. I've often thought about that. Our custom here is to not sit, isn't it? Uh, But to, to remain standing. And that's fine, it's just a matter of custom. But Jesus taught and as he taught that day and he said that this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and I'm sure there was a lot more that he said than just that, that was Luke's summary statement. They became infuriated. So much so that on his first visit to the hometown after he began his public ministry, they tried to throw him over a cliff. Now the city of Nazareth is in the mountain range that sits between, if we'll draw it here, here's the Mediterranean Sea, here's Israel, over here is the Jordan River Valley. Nazareth sits on the mountain range that it begins to, to grow up pretty close after the coastal plains out here and, and then it drops down into the Jordan Valley. The city of Nazareth itself is about 1400 feet above sea level. Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee are about 700 feet below sea level. So you're talking a, a, an elevation change of about 2100 feet. That's pretty significant. Now we kind of see why the storms on the Sea of Galilee could have been so violent because as the winds would come off the Mediterranean Sea and they would blow up that first mountain range and then they drop down, they could really make a, a mess of the Sea of Galilee, of the lake that's there. Well, Jesus makes the journey from Capernaum up to the mountain city of Nazareth. And as the crow flies it's a distance of about 20 miles. But of course as you're walking and you've got all the little turns and twists in the road and you get around the mountain passes and so forth it would have been about 30 miles. So 30 miles going from 700 feet below sea level to about 1400 feet above sea level that was not a one-day journey. That was at least a two-day journey. might have been three days. We don't know for sure. But when Jesus left Capernaum, he was headed to Nazareth. And when he got there, it must have been at least a couple of days before the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, is Saturday. It's not Sunday. This is the first day of the week. This is the Lord's Day. It's not the Sabbath at all. Um, He would have gotten there maybe Wednesday, maybe Thursday if he would have left on Sunday, if he would have left on Monday, we don't know. But he got there and spent a little bit of time before the Sabbath began. But when the Sabbath began, where was Jesus? He was in the synagogue. He was in the place that was recognized as the place where God was worshiped on the Sabbath. Now synagogue was not like the temple. At the temple they were making sacrifices. There were no sacrifices made at the synagogue. It was a place where the people would come and they would have the, the, some singing probably. Uh, they would sing some of the Psalms. Uh, they would read the scriptures. And the rabbi, if, if they had a rabbi there or one of the elders among the congregation, would get up and would speak from the scriptures. And of course, you know that that's the Old Testament because the New Testament hasn't been written yet. And so Jesus goes to the place of worship. And he goes to be able to share with the people who are gathered there the Word of God. Do you think worship is important to Jesus? I think so. I think so. Even... Though he is God in the flesh, yet he is also man. And the worship of God is a necessary component of human life. Do you know that you were made to worship? Worship takes place universally around the world. Now, people often worship the wrong thing. They they worship... They have that sense of desiring to to acknowledge something greater than themselves, to, to give of themselves to something greater. They willfully suppress, though, the knowledge of the truth. Romans 1 tells us that. Which is why you have people worshipping all kinds of gods and goddesses. Which is why you have people worshipping objects. Maybe it's their vacation home, maybe it's their car, maybe it's the something, I don't know. But people worship, and they spend their time and their effort and their energy pursuing those things that they think are most important in life. And, and they worship all the time. We were made to worship. And we were made to worship our Creator. But because of our sin, we don't do that the way we should but Jesus is going there on this day he's going to worship God he's going to teach he's going to preach remember I said last time that it was quite the custom of the the synagogue ruler if he himself was not doing the teaching or there wasn't a rabbi resident to do the teaching it was the synagogue rulers responsibility to get someone to identify someone to do the teaching for that day so on this day, Jesus is the one chosen to speak. Now, well, you can kind of understand that. Even though he had been there before and he wasn't really well thought of on that occasion, a little more than a year has passed. And the word of amazing things has filtered back into Nazareth. Uh, folks know who Jesus is, they have heard all the stories and all the things that have been going on and so doubtless if out of curiosity than nothing else Jesus was asked to speak and so he begins to speak we don't have the content of his sermon for that day but I'm gonna guess and probably I'm not wrong that it was very similar to what Mark said about Jesus and his ministry at the beginning of this gospel Jesus came Preaching the message of repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'll bet it was very similar to that message. It was along that theme. I don't know what the scroll reading was, the scripture reading was for that day. But I'm sure that in the providence of God, it turned out to be something that those people desperately needed to hear. Sometimes people ask, you know, Pastor Roger, how do, you, how do you figure out what to preach on any given Sunday? And it's very simple. I ask the Lord. And through that process of prayer and thinking about the scriptures and considering the, the condition, the spiritual health of our congregation, considering the things that are going on in our world, the Lord puts on my heart some passage of Scripture. And, and I am convinced that the best way to preach is exegetically through a book. That means verse by verse, line by line, principle by principle. And you know what? Isn't it amazing how many times as we're working through a book we come to a place and right there in the Scripture is something that applies to where we are either in our personal lives or in our community life or something, God's Word has application to our everyday lives. That's not me figuring that out. I I have planned out, and and I have on my computer, I'll be glad to show it to you, kind of a a flow of events where we're going to be for the rest of the year. So if you get here on any given Sunday, and it sounds like I'm preaching to you, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit. Because the things are planned and prepared and set forward in the providence of God months, even a year in advance. Only God could work something like that out. Only God could do that. And so I'm convinced that whatever the text happened to be, on that day, it was exactly what these people needed to hear in the synagogue on that occasion. And look at their response. They, they, they have a, a, <laughs> an interesting response. Verse 3, is this not the carpenter? Verse 2, he says, where did this man get these things? Who is this guy? I mean, we know him. He grew up here. And, and and he, you know, he learned a trade. He learned carpentry. Where did he learn that? Well, from his foster father Joseph. Every Jewish boy, no matter what his ultimate calling in life might have been, was they first learned a trade. apostle Paul. You remember Paul? He was a Pharisee. He was was really up there. But what was his trade? He knew how to make tents. He knew how to sew. And, And so that came in real handy throughout Paul's ministry because when You know, the church was not established, and he was seeking to establish a church in in a given community, and he didn't have a lot of money to be able to buy food or lodging or whatever. Guess what? He could make tents. He could probably sew sails together. He could do all kinds of things because he had a trade something that was of rock solid value. Jesus, the, the greatest itinerant preacher that's ever lived, had a trade. He was a carpenter. He could build stuff. (laughs) Boy, what what a great skill that is. You know what the most important jobs in the world today are? They are not computer jobs. They are things like carpentry and electrical work and plumbing and all those kinds of skills and trades that we so much take for granted that if those things don't work and we can't turn the electricity on it doesn't matter what wonderful computer you have you have a boat anchor you have nothing without electricity you know it doesn't matter uh, how how great a house might be when it gets a hole in the roof or you know something's not working, you want to call a carpenter. You want somebody that knows how to fix it, because you don't. Those are important skills. And they looked at Jesus and they said, This is an ordinary guy. He grew up here. He's a carpenter. We know this kid. Where does he get all these ideas? Where does he get all this ability? to to do these mighty works there in verse 2. It says, What wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed in his hands? You know, that question was asked at other points in Jesus' ministry. And the Pharisees had an answer, didn't they? Oh, yeah, he casts out demons, sure. Sure. But he does it by the prince of demons, by Beelzebub. He's in league with Satan. Well, that is a blasphemy that is unforgivable. To equate the power of God or to, to ascribe the power of Almighty God to Satan. That, that's beyond the pale of return. Return. They had all kinds of ideas. They were enraged with him but it was a different kind this time than before. Before when he was there they wanted to do violence to him and push him off a a cliff. And by the way, uh, you know, uh, the situation where Nazareth was located there's plenty of cliffs around. They could have found one very easily to push him off of. Now, however, their their anger at him takes a different form. It's more like who does this guy think he is, you know? They they kind of puff themselves up at Jesus and they treat him with disdain, they treat him with contempt. Who is this little upstart anyway? They're kind of blowing him off. Who does he think he is? You know, there's a lot of people that do that with Jesus even today they read the record and they think who in the world is this guy why should i believe in him god in the flesh that just that's just so bizarre that's so strange i don't know if you've ever read much about mythology uh, greek and roman mythology or norse mythology Um, even looking at, at some of the other religions of the world but particularly those that, rep- that, that include multiple gods and goddesses, the idea of God walking the face of the earth is not unknown to those other religions. And you say, oh, well, see, that's evidence that, that Jesus and Christianity is no different than anything else. Oh, I beg to differ with you. I beg to differ with you, and here's why. Because in those other religions, in those other stories, the, the gods and goddesses that walk the earth have a moral character which is no better and often worse than what human beings have. And they associate themselves with human beings and they, they procreate and they end up producing monstrosities of, of offspring that's not true in Christianity. Jesus walked this earth, God took on human form and was extremely, extremely careful to make sure that we understand that there was no sexual impropriety at all. Mary was a virgin and she gave birth and that's a miracle. That's a miracle. And Jesus as he walked this earth, was absolutely without sin. And yet he was tested, he was tempted, he was tried, but he came through the testings absolutely without sin. In fact, Jesus near the end of his ministry was in a confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees and and he says to them, he throws down the gauntlet, he says, which one of you convicts me of sin and all you heard were the crickets because nobody could convince or convict Jesus of any wrongdoing that would be a hard person to live with wouldn't you think well it would be for sinners because we don't like to live in the presence of holiness and that was the problem here in Nazareth Here was the Holy One, the Messiah, God in the flesh, standing in their midst. And they couldn't stand it. They didn't like it. Because when Jesus showed up, everybody felt guilty. You know, that's the problem with us as sinners, isn't it? We feel guilty because we are guilty. And when the Spirit of God begins to call us to Himself, He begins, John 16, 8 says, by convicting conviction. He convicts the world, the unbeliever, of sin and righteousness and judgment. Remember Isaiah who prophesied so much about the coming Messiah? Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died goes up to the temple to worship God and when he steps across the threshold into the temple, all of a sudden he has this vision of the heavenly temple and there is God seated on the throne and the train of His robe is filling the temple and His glory is filling the temple and the angels are there and they're crying back and forth to one another Holy, Holy, Holy! Lord God Almighty. And we see it again in the book of Revelation as John is transported in a vision there into the very presence of God. And there he is on the throne in all of his resplendent glory and the angels are ministering to him and the elders are falling down and worshipping and it's a loud and noisy place and and God is being worshipped there. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Literally, what he says is, I'm coming apart. I'm losing my integrity. I thought I had it together. And, and we, you and I would agree that Isaiah, as a prophet of God, was probably one of the most godly people in Israel at the time. I mean, if anybody had their act together, it would have been Isaiah and Isaiah, as he steps into the temple and sees this incredible vision, he says, I'm losing my integrity, I'm coming undone. I, I, am a, I am an unholy person, and here I am in the presence of holiness. Now, there's one of two things that we can do when we find ourselves under the conviction of the Spirit of God, when we realize that we are on holy ground, and here they are. Number one, we can run away We can get angry, we can close our hearts, we can close our minds, we can turn away from that convicting power of the Spirit, and we can go back to the things of sin. Or, we can fall on our face and say, God have mercy on me a sinner. That's why the Lord brings conviction to our heart, so that we become sensitive to our spiritual need, And we cry out to Him for forgiveness and salvation. It's natural for us to feel bad when we're in the presence of holiness because we are bad. But God doesn't bring that conviction merely to make us feel bad. He brings that conviction upon us so that we will repent and turn to him and receive the forgiveness that we so desperately need. God brings that conviction to us for a good purpose. And on this day in the city of Nazareth, when Jesus was preaching and teaching, and there the Holy One of Israel was standing in the presence of all of those people who had known him from when he was just a a little boy, He did not come just to make them feel bad. He came with the message of repentance and eternal life. But they didn't want it. They didn't want it. They treated him with contempt, with disdain. They said, listen, we know this guy. His brothers, his sisters... Mary and Joseph had more kids after Jesus. I mean, they went on and enjoyed a a normal uh, married life. And and the fruit of that was in these four sons and at least two daughters, maybe three or four, I don't know. But they couldn't stand Jesus. And even his own family, his own brothers and sisters, half-brothers and half-sisters, who grew up with him they didn't believe him it wasn't until after the resurrection that they finally the light came on you know and they they recognized jesus for who he really is beloved it is our own stubborn willful blind sinfulness that keeps us from turning to Jesus Christ and being saved. Notice what it says here in verse 4. Jesus responds, he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own relatives and in his own house. That's kind of a proverbial statement, isn't it? We even use it today. You know, well, a prophet's not without honor except in his own country. Um, That's just kind of the way we are verse 5 is interesting i've heard all kinds of expression or explanations about it it says he could do no mighty work there except that he did lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them and i've heard that could do no mighty work as some lack of being explained as some lack of power or ability on jesus's part it's like you know he got there, and here were all these unbelievers, and they sort of acted like kryptonite, and he couldn't uh, he couldn't uh, put forward any of his power. Eh, some of you are grinning, you know, you know, don't you? Yeah, okay that's that's wrong. that's absolutely wrong. I think in uh, John MacArthur's commentary on on the passage here, he offers a couple of of reasons, which I think are certainly. Uh, reasonable reasons as to why Jesus did not do here what he had done in so many other places one is that while Jesus was there not on the Sabbath but at other days leading up to it and maybe following it people just weren't coming you know they they, they didn't want to hear it from Jesus they, they didn't they just didn't come even though they had needs you know, there's people like that today, aren't there? Life is a mess, but you don't want to come to Jesus. You you don't want to think about him at all, and so you stay away. You avoid now obviously not you because you're here, but people in general, they just stay away. They don't go to church, they 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 don't listen to any good preaching on the radio, they just don't ever pick up the Bible. Why? Because oh, it's not because they don't have a need spiritually. But it's because they're just not interested. And so if they're not interested, God's not going to do anything for them, is he? Yeah. So that's, I think, one very plausible explanation as to why Jesus did not do a whole lot of mighty works there. Another suggestion that MacArthur makes, and I think it's worth consideration, is that Christ limited his ministry both as an act of mercy so that exposure to greater light would not result in a worse hardening of their hearts and would therefore subject them to a greater condemnation. You know, I don't understand it all. I don't begin to to think that I do. But God works in people in different ways at different times. Not everybody comes to know Christ at the same point in life in the same way. It's not a cookie cutter. And perhaps God was working in the lives of some of these people in Nazareth and and they were in the process of turning God off but God's in the process of tightening the screws a little bit and eventually down the road they might be saved But then maybe they won't be. I don't know from our perspective. God knows, but I don't. And yet, here's another opportunity for them to hear the truth which will eventually result in salvation. But, it might not. And the more truth that somebody rejects, the more responsible they are for it. Listen to what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 11, this was on another occasion, but he's talking about this kind of thing where people have seen the truth, they've seen the miracles, they've heard the word of God, and they just are hardening their hearts. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. It says, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. Those are cities, on, uh, Gentile cities, and they're on the border of Israel. And, and you know, there were, there were works done in them in the Old Testament that testified of God, and, and they didn't repent. But he says, it will be more tolerable for you. for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, now that was the city that kind of became his main base of operations during his public ministry. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Wow! For all the people in Capernaum who came to know the Lord, apparently it was a fairly small number in comparison with the whole population who were kind of interested in Jesus and loved to hear Him teach and preach and enjoyed the, the blessings of His miracles, but who refused to bend and bow their hearts before him. That's pretty astounding, isn't it? So maybe Jesus is limiting the display of who he is and of his power and majesty so as not to bring an even greater judgment upon the people of this city. I I don't know. Or it may simply be a judgment upon their unbelief. It may be to the place where, okay... You don't want to bow the knee to me? Fine. I'm going to let you alone in your sin. And I'm not going to do anything more. But you know what? It does say that there were a few people there who believed. There were a few people that Jesus healed. A few sick people. But comparatively small in number. You know, even in judgment there is mercy. Even in judgment God saves some but we should never presume on that today is the day of salvation you know, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior and you're here today this is, this is the day for you to be saved you don't know what tomorrow might bring you might not be alive anymore this may be your last day on earth so don't put that off Or you may have another 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead of you. Because you're hardening your heart, God says, well, that's all right. I'm I'm going to let you alone. And you might go on and live what you consider to be a wonderful life. But you get to the end of it, and you discover that because you have rejected Christ as Savior, your eternity is not a joyous place it's not a not a place you want to be your eternity is in the pit of hell separated forever from Almighty God this is the day of salvation Jesus never returned to Nazareth after this he probably had another maybe not quite two years of public ministry But we don't know that He ever returned to Nazareth. We don't know that anybody from Nazareth ever continued to follow Him. Uh, Scripture is silent. And you know that's kind of a scary thing, isn't it? When when God is silent, when He lets somebody alone to endure their own consequences, that's that's kind of a scary place to be. Beloved, the Lord is has reached out to you on this day, and the Spirit of God is working in your heart, bringing conviction to your soul, that's for a good reason. Because there is an eternity that's waiting for us. When life on this earth comes to an end, we don't cease to exist. We continue to exist somewhere. And there's only two places. That's either with God our creator or that is separated from God forever in what the Bible calls the second death or, or hell or Hades or the lake of fire. Today is the day of salvation. On that day when Jesus was there in Nazareth that was their day of salvation but the vast majority seemed to have blown him off don't let that happen to you instead turn your heart to jesus christ and be saved let's pray together heavenly father there's so much in your word and so little time to consider it but lord i pray that your spirit will take your word and cause it to sink deeply into our souls And Lord, if there are those here today that don't know Christ as their Savior, may they not turn away from Him. May they not push Him aside with that sort of proud, smug arrogance that says, oh, I don't need that. Father, may they recognize their own spiritual condition and turn to You and be saved. That's why. Jesus came to obtain our salvation for us. That's why the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, so that we might turn to you and be saved. Father, may those who know Christ as their Savior be greatly encouraged and once again be impressed with gratitude for the salvation that we enjoy. It's not because of any greatness in us, we're sinners. But it's because of your mercy, because of your grace, because of your compassion that we have that gift of eternal life. So Father, help us to honor you and to love you and to serve you and to share this good news with people around us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.